Hello and welcome to another edition of Traffic Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gaddy, is... Mr Tilteraiser. Now then, it appears that we are in somewhat of a festive season. Is that right? Because the mince pies are available in Asda just now. The ones with the ice top and what have you. So, given that gold has now changed its little icon to something which is probably a Christmas pudding or some bloody thing, then should we perhaps be talking about Christmassy things? Well, this show started out with a Christmas pilot, and we'll be following up on that in full in a couple of shows' time. But today we're returning to something else we touched upon in our pilot. Right at the end, after talking about A Christmas Carol, we started talking about seasonal oddities. And I believe every single one of the three films we talked about today got mentioned in our very first show. Now, this is an oddity because what we're actually doing here is we are talking about effectively a spin-off of a podcast that we haven't done yet. I was introducing you to the concept of the football replacement oddity. And this is something that you know of if you lived in Scotland in the 1980s. Well, we were comparing notes because I've always had this thing about the Christmas oddity. So, And I think we established that often the same kind of thing would be shown in both circumstances. So how do you easily define this? We're talking about basically films which are not major motion pictures. We're talking about television programs which are not easily identified as far as production company is concerned. So quite often we're talking about bought-in material and we're talking about sort of second-string bought-in material, kind of thing that would never really be on in peak time on terrestrial TV, but sometimes can find itself in peak time if it's on, say, a satellite channel nowadays, because, you know, you've got channels like True Movies and so on, which just turn into Christmas channels at this time of year, and they show all this kind of stuff at all hours of the day. But yeah, so I suppose that that's the thing that marks them out, is that they're not easy to put your finger on as far as where they were made when you're looking at it. And even when you've seen the name of the production company, you still sometimes can't quite figure it out. Sometimes it's got big names, sometimes, but it's not necessarily going to be, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think part of it is the Christmas schedules. It's going to be a time when TV's going on longer than normal in the old days. So they really have to think about putting something on early in the morning or throughout the day. There are going to be people watching. It has to be kid-friendly. But because it's a special time of year, because you don't know who's watching when, you can't put out the normally scheduled things. You have to put something out that's a bit special, but you can't put something out that's too special to be thrown out at 8 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning or sometime which is not prime time. Now, the ones that stick in my memory are not specifically Christmassy. I think I mentioned this before. I became convinced that a film called Barnaby and Me was shown every single Boxing Day throughout the 80s and into the 90s. This turns out not to be true. I checked genome. My memory was, was that every January 1st, Yorkshire Television would always show the cartoon version of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe with the American soundtrack. I think one time I had access to a newspaper archive. This didn't appear to be true. Now, this is not just the memory cheats, because I also remember getting one year's Christmas TV times and going to check. It's on again. It's, it's on again. It's going to be on again. Of course it's on again. It's always on again. So they formed these impressions, even though it might just be two or three Christmases, a bit like my belief that lunchtime, BBC One, Christmas Day was always a repeat of the two Ronnies. And I think that turned out to be maybe four times. Yeah, it was something that they did late 80s, early 90s, a comedy classic. 
package around about lunchtime. But we decided to pick three Christmassy ones just to keep him with the feeling. Well, you picked the first one. That was Christmassy. And you know me, I just like to keep things neat and tidy. Don't like to break a pattern if I can avoid it. So the other two had to be Christmassy as well. This is an oddity given what we've just been saying about how these things turn up principally on terrestrial TV at funny hours and so on. Because to the best of my knowledge, this particular programme never turned up on terrestrial TV. The reason that I've suggested this is because I used to see it listed each and every Christmas. And like you're talking about there, about Lion, Witch and Wardrobe and things like that, I had this idea that this went on for about 10 years. But in actual fact, <laughs> it, it did It did actually go out uh, over a four-year span on Christmas Day. I first became aware of this around about 1990. For reasons that I can't quite put my finger on, I was a regular reader of Satellite TV Europe magazine, despite not having satellite or cable. And I wouldn't have satellite or cable for another eight years at this point. But nonetheless, Satellite TV Europe, it was offering all these wonderful listings for all this crud that was on satellite and what have you. And of course, back then, satellite you had in the UK was also sharing space with channels that were principally aimed for people in Germany, for example. So you had a lot of funny business, you had a lot of time shifting, time sharing and all sorts of stuff going on. But anyway, every single year I used to see this listing for this little half an hour short called Mr. Kruger's Christmas. Now straight away I'm thinking, it isn't, is it? I mean, I know there is like a, a TV version of Freddy Krueger, but they're not going to put that <laughs> out at half past ten the bloody morning, are they? And of course it wasn't at all. This was something which was made in 1980 and... If anybody can find anything to the contrary, I'd like to know. But as far as I can tell, this went out in the UK four times from 1989 through to 1992. Every year it was on Christmas Day on Sky 1, originally Sky Channel. And you had a theory tell about perhaps why this might not be on terrestrial TV. It might be something to do with who's actually behind this. Yes, it's produced by Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I'm just wondering if that might have set alarm bells ringing because we're in the middle of that controversy as we're speaking of the Lord's Prayer being absolutely and definitively banned from cinemas, not rather than religious advertising has never been allowed in cinemas. That's an argument for another day. There might not be anything against the rules, but it might be a reason for television companies, terrestrial television companies, to be a little bit cautious. There's no real proselytising in this thing, though. This is going to be a difficult one to talk about because we have a no-sneering rule. We're going to make the obvious edgy jokes, and it's about a lonely old man. We could do John Lewis jokes. And there's That's so right. many naff studenty jokes we could make here about this lonely old creepy old guy and his cellar full of bones. And that would be counter to the message, which is look after lonely old guys. He means nobody any harm. He does nobody any harm. And he has little fantasies about being a man about town and buying expensive suits. Okay, do you want to set this up? That There's something that interests me in here. Okay, so it's James Stewart, and he's not actually out in the streets or anything like that, but he's living a hermit lifestyle, I suppose you could say, to an extent. And we see these images of him imagining how different things could be. And he imagines himself, for example, as you said, in the, the tailors getting all dolled up and what have you. And he also, because the choir's outside and they're all having a sing-song and what have you, because it's Christmas, isn't it? So he imagines himself conducting the choir. Eventually he goes home and he gets 
called upon by the choir and they're singing their songs and what have you. Whoa, 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 and whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what you what? jumping ahead here? Have what? I? <laughs> yeah, he sees the Salvation Army band playing. He goes home. He's a janitor. Custodian, that's the word they use. He's a custodian in an apartment building. Quite why he has to have such a horrible little cellar, I don't know. Because he likes it there. I don't think he particularly likes it. He dreams about having a bigger room. Why can't he have a nice flat? Don't pay him as much. Give him a nicer place to stay in. What do you, what do you mean don't pay him as much? He's not on exactly... Well, that's true. Okay, yeah, pay him as much. Pay him more. Union. Minimum $15 per hour. <laughs> President Sanders will sort this out anyway. <laughs> he goes home. He plays White Christmas at 16 RPM. He gets out his Christmas records. And we also establish he's a widower. We see a picture of his late wife. And that's when he imagines conducting a choir. Now, did you know this film was remade? Very popular, successful blockbuster from a few years ago was actually a remake of this. (laughs) Because he imagines himself conducting the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And while he imagines himself conducting the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, he then imagines that he's on a sleigh with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir or select members, and they're going through the snow. So he's having a dream inside his dream. So this was remade as Inception. <laughs> That's a fact now. Get that on Wikipedia, get that on IMDb, and it's certified. But there you go. Repetition of the lie makes it a fact. So can we get this trending on Twitter? And then he gets visited by the Midwich family singers. <laughs> right, why are the carol singers so immediately nervous of him? He hears some singing. He opens a little window and says come down and, and sing for me I'll make you some hot chocolate and they immediately look like oh god not this oh my god oh, it's not like he's wearing black sunglasses and a butcher's smock covered with blood right I've got an idea well I've got two ideas basically one is that they're thinking oh it's a fellow by himself and he's not said he's going to put any money in our, in our tin or anything like that maybe there's he's a smell us- that we can't smell and I have a theory High karate. And he's going to make this hot chocolate. And it's all a bit, you know, it's all a bit, I don't know. So that's what I think is going on. But I do have another idea. People with that kind of hate in their heart should not be singing Christmas carols. What I think possibly is going on here is that they actually called at his place last year. And he did the same from last year. He made this hot chocolate. Now, I knew somebody a few years back who said to me once, um, she'd been drinking this Cadbury's hot chocolate drink for quite a few days. And she said, I'm not going to buy this stuff again. It's just really bitter. It's not like any drinking chocolate I've had before. And I had a look at the packet and it said that you were supposed to add sugar to it. So she was just drinking bitter drinking chocolate. And I think perhaps that's what's going on here is that he doesn't know that you're supposed to add sugar to his drinking chocolate or that he chooses not to because he likes it that way. And they're going to have to down this drinking chocolate and go, hmm, lovely just as they did last Can't they just sort of say, oh, this is lovely. Can we just have a little bit of sugar? America's a really open country. You can communicate quite openly with people. No, they asked that question last year. And the, and response, it they, off, did it? the response they got, they, they had to... I mean, I'm quite to surprised off. in that case that Mr. Kruger would ask them down again. They had to... No, he didn't have any problem asking, but I'm surprised they went back. But I mean, they had to go off to the, the local library and actually look up some of the words that he used in response to them. So I'm more surprised that they actually came calling again. Language broadens the mind, doesn't it? So they come down and it's mostly adults. He ends up accidentally kissing a woman's hand because he's gone off into one of his fantasies. 
He imagines that he lives in this incredibly plush apartment and they're all dressed faintly Victorian. So it looks like some wonderful cheesy Christmas special. I think he's wearing a frock coat, isn't he? I had an idea, but it's a bit meta. Oh, go on. No, meta's good. I don't know if it would go down well. Okay, as part of one of his fantasies, he actually starts fantasizing that he is Jimmy Stewart. He actually like imagines himself at like the Oscar ceremony and so on. How about he fantasizes he's Jimmy Clitheroe? No, that's just going to be weird, isn't it? It's a niche appeal, yes. Oh, actually, no, hang on a minute. You know what? Um, can I just mention the fact that on Talk Show Talk Show, I know it was a while ago, but on Talk Show Talk Show, uh, you and George ended up libeling the Osmonds. Yeah, you've really pointed this out. I know. I'll point it out again ref- because I like making you feel bad. Because I made a reference to Donny Osmond drinking, was it caffeine? So under what circumstances? You've done enough upsetting Mormons for once in my lifetime. So I just happened to leave out, there was a Mormon DJ on after me, just happened to leave out a copy of 666 The Apocalypse of John by Aphrodite's Child. Now, it's a concept album based on the last book of the Bible. But really, once they see a big red album cover with a big white 666 on black, <laughs> that's really the first thing they take in. And there isn't really time during the handover, you know, to make a discussion about, oh, you know, do you like Demis Roussos? I'm sure that Teddy Wogan and Jimmy Young could have pulled that off. So, inadvertently upset a Mormon. So, actually, I think I offered to make a cup of coffee as well, which is how I learned. Let's can this bit and go back to making fun of this old movie in which a man doesn't hurt anybody, nobody gets hurt, and we just sit on the sidelines going, (laughs) Christmas, We haven't done any of that. Yeah, but we will. They have a little girl with them, and she's one of the midwitch cuckoos. What? You know, Village of the Damned. No. The kids with all the sort of weird straight white hair. It's a famous horror movie from the 60s. Oh, wow. I don't, black I don't white. do horror movies. Well, she's got this unusually blonde hair. It's unusually blonde and unusually thick. And I'm going to say it's a wig, actually. But I'm going to say that really you don't normally see hair like that outside of a Nicki Minaj video. Now you've just got me thinking about Mr. Kruger's Christmas processed through Tim and Eric. So Jimmy Stewart says, what unusually blonde hair you've got. Blonde. Well, he takes a nice innocent Blech. shine to her. This is where a lesser podcast would start bringing out those jokes. We don't do that. Okay, do you know who it's reminding him of? Patsy Ann Scott in 321. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, if you want really niche, I was going to say it reminds him of the assistant in the TSW sci-fi game show Treasures of the Mind Lord. I just had this memory, possibly false, that there was some game show and it was like the guy had like that kind of hair and he looked a bit weird and he was like wearing a spacesuit. And then 20 odd years later, I discovered that there was this thing called Treasures of the Mind Lord. So, yeah, that must be what it was. I mean, that actually, I think that was about five years after Mr. Kruger's Christmas was made. So the link is rather tenuous. But well, I think yeah. this brings out all of Mr. Kruger's grand paternal feelings. And the little girl sees something in him, though she does go to Nick is Jesus. Well, she doesn't go to nick it, but he's got his crib set up and he, she picks it up and she's looking at it. And I'm thinking maybe she was checking it wasn't made of fondant. <laughs> Look, there's nothing wrong with Mr. Kruger because then it's like the mother to the little girl is like, no, come away. Stop bothering this nice man. Fine, it's cautious, but she's just advertising it. Just like, just get away from this creepy old gimmer. <laughs> Let's just get out of here. Don't look. Just walk as fast as your little legs will carry you. Where do they get off this choir? Poor old Mr. Kruger. 
So he's treated as a social pariah because you can see the loneliness. He's going, no, 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 please don't go. I'll make some chocolate. And they just leg it. Well, look, they move in an oddly fashion. They don't go, cheese it! You can tell that's what's in their minds. Actually, leave a little dust cloud behind them. (laughs) And then Mr. Kruger, I guess, falls asleep in his chair and has a dream, and he meets baby Jesus. And mentions about how, you know, he misses his wife, and then he's talking about some woman who broke her pipes deliberately just because she wanted somebody to talk to. And at first he hated this woman, and then he realised that Jesus loves her, and then he eventually decided that the right thing to do was to befriend her, and they were very good friends right up until she died. And crucially, what Mr. Kruger doesn't say is, Jesus, why do all my women die? (laughs) Send me one who will outlive me by a day? (laughs) Now, this is interesting. There's a weird parallel here. Scrooge, about a crotchety old man who is put through the ringer for being unkind and mean. It's a Wonderful Life is about a good, kind man who is put through the ringer for showing insufficient gratitude for his life, which isn't all that great. Mr. Kruger is a lonely old man who is grateful for his sad, lonely old existence. Yeah, that's all I've got there. Sorry, I thought I was going to get a pat on the back for being observant. Well, if you want to hear more on Tilt's comparisons between Scrooge and Mr. Kruger, then you think your article's going to be in this month's edition of The Listener? It's going to be the front page of every newspaper. Except for the Mormon Herald, which which would be my picture saying, get this guy. Mormon enemy number one. Shouldn't it be called something like Good Mormon America or something like that? Oh, just, right. Just, just, okay, thank you. Thank you. You're the one who upsets them. No, no, I'm just, do, I'm, so. just, I'm just, just a little play on warrant. That's all it is. It's just no more offensive than Ronnie Barker. So anyway, what happened is the little girl left behind a pair of mittens, which Mr. Kruger used to decorate the tree. And the mother comes back with the little girl and says, do you have a pair of mittens? And... The little girl notices them on the tree, and Mr. Kruger says, you remind me of everything that's good about Christmas. Because he really likes Angora berries. That's what, that's what the girl's wearing on her Nicki Minaj wig. And the mother takes pity on him, and he gets invited to sing with the choir. They need a bass man. And they set off out to go singing carols, and the little girl... Oh, no, hang on a minute. We've missed that one fantasy, where he fantasizes that he's like helping the little girl decorate a big tree. And there are dancers there, and they twirl around, and you can see up their skirts because (laughs) (laughs) he may not be a creepy old man but he's not a celibate saint he's a grown up dancers (laughs) it's about the least salacious way you could do that just spinning around dancing I think you have to clarify that Mr. Kruger himself wasn't engaged in that activity he wasn't like Danny LaRue or Miss Fred Deliberately decorating the underside of the tree so we can have a bloody good look at pants people and what have you. It wasn't like that. Anyway, so they go off out carol singing and the little girl says, I love you, Mr. Kruger. And I don't know where that comes from. So he's not known him long. I guess maybe it's just, you know, you've got a nice crib, by which I mean the decoration of the family, not your squalid little apartment. You're resourceful, you get a pair of mittens left over, you decorate the tree with them. Maybe that's it, but... 
Okay, I have another theory. I have another theory. Why didn't this have his own sitcom spin-off, Mr. Kruger's squalid little apartment? He could have been a regular at Cheers. What would his shtick be? How do you make Mr. Kruger funny? Okay, so he does a cracking Jimmy Stewart impersonation, which gets everybody rolling around in the aisles for a start. But how do you follow it up? Isn't that like the only impression he can do? Or can he, mm, you dirty rats? <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, he doesn't realise he's doing Jimmy Stewart okay. impersonation, oh, okay. so everything that he ever says just gets gales of laughter, even when he's trying to be really sincere. Does he do George Arliss? He can do by request, but he needs 24 hours notice. Wouldn't you love going to see a comedian and for all of their impressions and jokes to be about 70 to 80 years out of date, unconsciously? <laughs> I'd really enjoy that. Yeah. thing is... Somebody like that, if you found them the right kind of places, they'd be a big hit with the TCM crowd. Yeah, I, I suspect so. I mean, it's quite a, a niche audience, but yeah. I mean, but the thing is, it's not just like... Mr. Kruger's thing. comedy. This this could have been the sequel. And he does the whole Hollywood party and there's Eddie Cantor. <laughs> you, you also see, and he does all that business. And... Are you doing the Hollywood party? Yes. <laughs> and here's Tyrone Power. I can't actually do him. <laughs> Yeah, they could slip this on during the, the breaks on Talking Pictures. Best television channel out there, by the way. If you haven't seen Talking Pictures, if you're in the UK, it's on Sky and it's on Freeview if you're in certain areas. And it's bloody brilliant. It's like TCM used to be. There really needs to be a voiceover at the end of this. Oh, wait, no, there is a voiceover at the end of Mr. Kruger's Christmas. But the general gist of it is, isn't that what Christmas is all about? Love. I'd rather they took the screwdriver and tell us what happened next. What happened next to Mr. Kruger? Did he become famous for being able to keep Christmas in his heart? See, I've been hesitating actually mentioning this. Actually, I think that I know what your response will be. But did you see that press release today by any chance? No. About what the BBC's putting on at Christmas? They're going to put out this drama called Dickensian, and it's going to be basically a Dickens mashup. Oh, Dickensian. I thought you said the Kinsian. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to do a drama about the Kinsey Report at Christmas. No, they're, so they're basically going to take Scrooge and the others. Martin Chuzzlewit? Presumably. And they'll have more Nicholas together. Nickleby? What about Jonas Grumby? Is he going to be in it? To be confirmed. No, he's not going to be in it because that's the skipper from Gilligan's Island. Ha <laughs> ha! I got you! Boo! What happened next to Mr. Kruger? Did he become a famous bass singer? Did he end up conducting the Mormon Tabernacle Choir? No, I suspect that he probably just carried on pretty much as he was, but he became a regular member of the choir, and so he had more contacts in his address book. He had one of those address books where you've got like like the big phone at the top, you know, like the big phone dial at the top of the book. He's got one of them, and he's got some new names to write in it. Well, the voiceover at the end should have done that. It should have given us at least a little crew that Mr. Kruger was going to be okay. I'm sure he's fine. The thing is, okay, now I want to go back to Scrooge for a second. Has anybody ever actually done a sequel which showed us what happened next? Because Yes, we we'll talk happens. about that some other time. So that's Mr. Kruger. This was the first time you saw it, yes? It was indeed, yeah, because of course... And was your was curiosity satisfied? Pretty much, yes. Because I discovered a few years ago that it wasn't anything to do with Nightmare on Elm Street. So I sort of had an impression that it would be something of this ilk. And yeah, there it was. I would have liked to have seen it in 1990. 
See, the thing is, if I'd had Satellite in 1990, I reckon that Christmas in 1990, I would have been a disgruntled, soon-to-be ex-BSB customer. Because they all had Mr. Kruger's Christmas piped in to their TV when they weren't expecting it in December 1990. Did BSB actually have a Christmas schedule no. prepared? Ah. Oh, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know about one prepared. That's a good point. There was a BSB magazine that was published. They would have certainly had something in the works because it was, I think, late November 1990 that this happened. Yeah, they probably had something planned. And let's face it, it was probably going to be Doctor Who and the goodies because that's what it usually was in Galaxy. Around the world with Dot embodies a lot of the things I think of when I think of seasonal oddities. Well, last year we did mention there is one particular seasonal oddity we can't really talk about. Funny you said that, actually. Because its star has been... Well, oh, sorry, is it on Christmas Day? Okay. No, 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 no. Funny you say that because... <laughs> Effectively, what we're doing here, without realising it, is that we are just going back in time 24 hours because Dot and Santa Claus got its first showing British television on Christmas Eve 1983 on BBC One. I'd never seen this before. What I had seen was its predecessor, Dot and the Kangaroo, and this turns out to be a direct sequel. Unfortunately, it does cast a little bit of a poor light on the original because you know the whole thing about the kangaroo who's lost her joey? Hmm, yeah. There's a couple of scenes and an entire song reused from the first film. Oh, what? So yes, in the first film, she met the kangaroo who lost her joey and then went home. She went around the Australian bush, saw all the magnificent flora and fauna, and then went home. And the kangaroo was not reunited with her joey. So I guess this was like, oh boy, yeah, ha, hmm, unfinished business. Also, there's a bit of discontinuity, because as far as I can tell, in the original film, Dot lived in the early 20th century just looking at the way her parents were dressed whereas suddenly she's living in the 1970s what year was this made 1981 <laughs> <laughs> near enough but also she's got that weird business going on actually same year isn't it only when i laugh she's got that weird business where the children's voices aren't really children's voices you don't get that anymore do you how did that actually begin? I mean, whose idea was that in the first place? And why do we still have that? The worst one was that Kinder Egg advert. Something to play with and some chocolate. That sounded like bird of law. <laughs> this was a weird one. This had a real haunt or vibe, didn't it? It did, and I didn't particularly take to this because it was too much heart-tugging. Oh, uh, my... No, oh, no, I yes, I forgot my... to mention, we should have done Dot and the Kangaroo, really, but it, it, I thought, ah, oh, there's a Christmassy sequel. We'll go for the Christmassy sequel. Dot and the Kangaroo ends with Dot crying. She has an adventure with the kangaroo, and then the kangaroo says, you belong with your own kind, I'm going back to my own kind. Dot bursts into tears and goes, oh, oh, kangaroo, I love you. And the kangaroo turns into a live-action kangaroo, and then we see the kangaroo hopping off and we just hear a dog going, oh, 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 oh. and then that's the credits roll bloody hell <laughs> okay it's no Gideon but there's too much that I can finger on in this well if we mentioned because this also has an abrupt ending and as mentioned last year if you go to a Christmas pilot the film we can't really talk about in full The Little Convict that also ends with a an abrupt and slightly spooky ending I didn't find that ending. It is spooky, yes, I know what you mean, but I didn't find it unsettling. Whereas, yeah, the ending to this, 
again, it was like there's more unfinished business. It's like how long are they going to keep on stretching this out? Because as you say, right, first one, I didn't know about this until you mentioned it just now, but first one, Joey isn't reunited with Muller. Second one, it's like, yeah, okay, you will be. But it doesn't actually happen on screen. So is that what happens in the third one? Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. We're just kind of assured, yeah, they they found the Joey. Oh, sorry, it's a spoiler for the end of Around the World with Dots. <laughs> no, but the whole time we were watching this, because this is like an hour and 13 minutes. Also, the scene that's repeated from the first film it seems to involve Dot taking hallucinogens. Oh, yeah. yeah it was a bit like Eat on. these. We call them the food of understanding, and they allow you to understand animals. Oh, we did a drugs job. Oh, they were all on drugs. We avoided the other kind of joke. We went straight into the drugs joke. Sorry. We did have mushrooms once. It was now, what was it now? It was, I don't even remember what it was. It was some, what's that company that made Portland Bill? Was it Film Fair? Is that them? I don't know who made Portland Bill. We'll have some fun and laughter. Who laughed at Portland Bill? <laughs> It was something like that. It wasn't Portland Bill, but it was one of those things. Not Cockleshell Bay. No, it wasn't. It wasn't Cockleshell Bay. No, it was. It was just some bloody thing. And then they announced, and I, I had it on. I mean, I don't know, it was a five or something like that. I had it on. I wasn't really paying attention to it. Suddenly, we get a voiceover at the end, and you don't usually get voiceovers on children's television. Not not the midday slot. So this is unusual. And the voiceover says, "Don't be going eating mushrooms." That's not actually how they said it. They didn't say it like that, of course. Oh, it was to that effect. It was like basically there's a character in this and ate mushroom and listen, you know, pal, don't go doing that yourself because, oh, mushrooms, bad. So presumably if they showed this nowadays, they'd have to say, oh, don't be going taking Smarties to try and then understand kangaroos. Well, don't eat anything that's given to you by a kangaroo. But I don't think there's much risk of people doing that anyway. No, this was about an hour and a quarter and I was thinking throughout which bits would I edit if I was putting this out for transmission in 2015? And there was a few bits where I was sort of thinking, okay, that bit there, a bit scary. Hmm, that bit there is a bit... Uh. So I I think eventually, mentally, I cut it down to about 55 minutes, which would be ideal, actually, because you can have it on 5 a.m. Then have ITN News 5.55, GMTV, sorted. So, yeah. You know who Dot sounded like? Ethel from the Glums. <laughs> now, which one? Well, fortunately, Patricia Brick is very talented, and I think she was able to reproduce the voice. Apparently her voice is somewhat different. I've seen a review of the new clums, the old new clums, which suggests... Well, I didn't notice, so job done. So we just talk about all the places where this movie is unnecessarily sad. Well, no, we do need to actually describe the plot, because a guy who at one point describes himself as a swag man, do you think that's an Australian playing up to the foreign perception of Australians. Well, he does look a bit stereotypical, doesn't he? Well, okay, he just turns up and talks to these two children who don't appear to have parents. And then Dot mentions that she's met a kangaroo who can't find her joey. She'd like to locate this joey, so the swag man, it's called Gary. The swag man builds a sleigh and turns into Santa Claus. He has a song called Ingenuity. There's no real lead up to this. He's just singing a song about how you can do anything with ingenuity and a piece of string and a rubber band and then build a sleigh and in the process of building the sleigh turns into Santa. That bit where he stopped being Santa, that was quite unsettling, wasn't it? Let's just put the word unsettling away because otherwise we're going to wear it out. No, it it was more, it was rapid eye movement business, wasn't it? 
Yeah, Santa, not Santa, nothing. That's the thing. They don't just like cut between him being Swagman and being Santa. They cut between him being a Swagman, being Santa, and not being there at all. Just timed it wrong, he would have vanished entirely. See, they should have thrown in a lot more things. So, Santa, not Santa, Santa upside down, Santa in negative form. I think it's Santa in a negligee. <laughs> that too. Daddy LaRue. Corgette. Stapler. Sandy Gall. <laughs> Mornington Crescent. <laughs> anyway, so the gist is, is that Dot and Santa turn into cartoons and then go flying off to look for the Joey. And this is a small child who is on Santa's sleigh flying through the air. It's pulled by a couple of kangaroos, not reindeer. One of the kangaroos being voiced by Han Hattie from Neighbours. So she's on Santa's sleigh being pulled through the sky and she sings the most maudlin, lachrymose song. I think the words are faintly hopeful and happy. But, oh, I'm, I'm flying through the air. This must be a special kind of magic. Oh, I don't know if it is in a minor key, because I actually sometimes have problems telling if something's in the major or the minor. I made that mistake with the theme from Picture Box a while ago. Yeah, well, for the most part, it's in the major. It has a little turn into the minor. But anyway, that's our first sudden trip to unnecessary sadness land. They go to Japan, meet some stereotypes. Oh, they were, weren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but... Not really my place to keep kicking up a stink. Then they go to Russia. Oh. That doesn't improve. Okay, now here's the thing. It takes them uh, a year <laughs> to get from Japan to Russia flying. Yeah, they have this whole sequence where it's basically here are the order of the seasons. Really nice montages of artwork illustrating the seasons. I don't know, it just comes up in the conversation and that's it. We have the seasonal montage. It feels like something that could almost be snipped out and used elsewhere as like a start-up or a close-down. And I was thinking it could have gone out as like one of those little inserts in Sesame Street. Maybe if you needed to insert something to cover up Crackman or whatever it was called. And we get to Russia and it's, oh, it's the Moscow Circus. Is it Moscow State Circus? Well, everything belonged to the state in those days. And... I mean, that just raises you, oh, good, we're going to see some funny animals and some clowns and some circus fun and maybe some flying trapeze. I hand over to you because oh, my voice is too jolly. Right. Okay. So we find out that Joey, the aforementioned missing kangaroo, he has ended up in the circus. And like all the other animals, he's behind bars when he's not performing in the circus way. And then he sings this song and it's like okay you know that one with little Kermit where he sings about he's sitting on the, on the middle of the stairs it sort of reminded me a bit like that but it was like circuses are prisons they're just called something that is a literal lyric so circus is a prison for an animal yes I don't really want to give the impression that we think this is a badly made incompetent film this is just made with somebody with a different storytelling agenda from most stuff that was served for children. It's laying on a bit thick, I'd say. And I know that by 81, we've got past the point where the circuses are unquestionable light entertainment. By this point, I think they've started to sort of disappear from British television. They've not disappeared entirely, but they're starting to escape to the edges of the schedule rather than being, you know, 10 past 3 Christmas Day. And animal welfare is becoming a, a bigger issue and so on. But there's no subtlety here. It's like being whacked over the head with one of those huge inflatable hammers. Speaking of which, you see, a lot of the other stuff I can maybe excuse. 
this film does underline a message of animal rights. Dot's melancholy flying with Santa song. Oh, okay, it gives you a sort of ethereal feel. There's one bit where they fly past a plane and a little boy says, look, mummy, a sleigh being carried by two kangaroos. And the mother just loses it. She's drinking a cup of coffee and crushes it in her hand and smacks him so hard. I mean, she really just like, insanely distorted by anger and this is after we overhead the volcano acid trip where they went through the smoke of a volcano and saw demons but this somehow makes it worse that's the one bit that's like whoa 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 no this is just piling suffering on top of suffering <laughs> i think we'd feel significantly different about this film if it didn't have that bit in it See, that's the bit that should have been isolated for the BBC trailer. So, okay, it's got a good sort of message to put across on occasion, but the way it does it, it's a bit heavy-handed. But the interesting thing is that when then Joey, Joey sort of comes across like, he comes across a little bit like Kenneth Cope and Carry On at Your Convenience. Because Joey's like saying to all the other animals, we can escape, you know, we can get the hell out of here. And they're all sort of nonchalant or just saying like, you know, forget it, it's not going to happen. So yeah, he really does sound like he's trying to stir it and saying, come on, everybody out. And they're all just saying, oh, just leave us alone, will you? So eventually, Joey and A.N. Oller Animal, undefined, leap out of the tent and hightail it. Which means Dot and Santa have to keep going. It's what they call plot tokens, isn't it? They just keep going to a different place every time to find something. And in the end, you can say, there, that was a story. It's also the anti-communist message. They go and meet some Russian bears in Siberia and... Two of them do the work, one of them gives the orders, and we get the, if you're all equal, why do they do all the work? I'm more equal than them. Yes, where do you get that idea? But even the enthusiastically communist Bev catches herself mentioning the good old days of the Tsar. Oh no, I meant bad old days. And there's something about, I don't know, I didn't understand the story about the invention of the Christmas tree coming through the benevolence of the Tsarist forces. I didn't get that bit. I'm afraid I did let my attention wander. But bear in mind, I mean, okay, if you were watching this, when it first went out, what was it, about half past 12 in the day? But let's face it, if you're watching this any other time, it's probably going to be about 5am. So you can be forgiven for being a bit sleepy when it's on. There's a really odd disconnect sometimes between the dialogue and the action. Somebody will be talking and we'll cut to somebody doing something entirely other. Or sometimes we'll cut to the character who's talking. The Japanese goldfish is hiding from a crane that's trying to eat it but is also carrying on a conversation as if nothing unusual is happening. No, it helps give it this strange dreamlike quality. This is not dreamlike enough. If it was more dreamlike, if it was just each scene moulded into every other scene and eventually the dialogue, people were taking maybe like five seconds to say a word, whereas normally it would just come out normally. And then John Pertwee turns up for no apparent reason, and here's Charles Hawtrey and what have you. I would have enjoyed it more like that, but what I'm actually describing here is just one of my dreams, basically. It's not really anything to do with Dot and Santa Claus at all. Go to Germany, nothing much interesting happens there. Fly over France. Right, okay, here's the problem, London. The policeman is wearing some manner of Victorian uniform with an extremely long tunic. He's basically one of the police officers from the Phantom Raspberry Blower. <laughs> and then... Dot is supposed to go off looking for Joey. Santa goes in one direction, Dot goes off in the other direction, and then Dot suddenly has a breakdown. It's so easy to be lonely in a crowd. What are you complaining about? You can go back to the sleigh. The kangaroos are still going to be there. It's not like you'd think that she'd been lost for a couple of days. 
not that she set off in one direction and then within a couple of minutes decided to complain and look in a toy shop. I, d- I like the animation in this, but sometimes there's so much going on that doesn't really add up to anything in the story. We haven't actually mentioned yet that a lot of the animation is combined with live action. Well, you have now. Not so much in the bulk of the film, but it's more sort of like the outer edges, isn't it? It's more like photographic backgrounds, isn't it, to give that effect. And then we have the Watergate business. (laughs) (laughs) They go to New York, they meet the most important mouse in New York who mentions his huge network of mice who crawl into pigeonholes and eat lettuce and destroy things. And you're thinking, is this a Watergate thing? And then Kissinger Mouse turns up. <laughs> we just needed Rich Little to arrive and old Jigsaw would have been complete. Didn't you pick up that a letter to Santa Claus is eaten by a mouse? Yes, yes. Why? Why? That just Again, that just piles the sadness on. But I don't want to speak too ill of it. But how many times was this shown over Christmas? It was only ever shown on Christmas Eve and Boxing Day, was it? It was never shown on the day itself. Not as far as I can tell. It's, it's been given pretty good billing in 83. It's got the whole first showing on British television tag and all that kind of thing. But it's pretty much disappeared since, hasn't it? I mean, it's not considered a classic of its genre. Actually, there are quite a lot of old ones, aren't there? There's quite a lot of sequels. Oh, yes. There's lots of dot films. I still think it's a beautiful example of the seasonal oddity. It kind of captures everything about it. Animal Olympics, that's another one. <laughs> the only thing that slightly put me off was the fact that it did actually get such a nice little plum Christmas Eve slot in 83. I was sort of hoping that the first time I was going to discover this was going to be that it went out on Lifestyle Satellite Channel at about five past nine in the morning on the 23rd or something like that. So, yeah, the fact that they went out of their way to say, well, hey, look, it's a film premiere. I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, yeah, I think nowadays, if it turned up nowadays, it would certainly be a seasonal oddity. Are we at a disconnect here? I mean, is this something which goes out at Christmas time in Australia in the same way? They probably get like Children's Film Foundation films that we think are hugely famous and familiar. They probably get pop pirates. <laughs> Does this go out in Australia in the same way that Freddie Frinson goes out in Germany every New Year's Eve or something like that? I mean, it might be, mightn't it? It might be a tradition. It could be like it goes out at a fixed time every year and maybe there's like a maybe have like a whole week of dot films every year for this time of year but i mean you'd soon spot this in the cbbc schedule wouldn't you now before we get to the last of our trio we should give an honorable mention to one film that we actually watched in full but we thought that perhaps it wasn't dissimilar enough to mr kruger's christmas to warrant its own inclusion and that was a hobo's <laughs> christmas now the reason that we actually Watch this film is because some months ago we no, were this having... was last year. This was on the pilot. Oh, was it right? Okay, right. I didn't, I didn't actually realize it was on the, the the podcast itself. So apparently we were discussing films of this type, and I was trying to think of the name of one, and and the name I came up with was Hobo's Last Christmas. And ever since then, just this idea of this ultra depressing film stuck in our heads. And I mean, it would have made Dot look like fun and laughter with the Flintstone comedy show. So when this film turned up, and it turned up on a channel in the UK, I think it was True Christmas, I was like, bloody hell, look at this, it's Hobo's Christmas. And <laughs> it actually turned out to be 
not as hobo-ish. Oh, as we got so bored by this. We sort of hoped. What did he start calling it? He start referring to it as hobo's Christmas bonnet. <laughs> <laughs> That's partially influenced by the comic book story Batman's Greatest Boner, in which boner means mistake. <laughs> this took way too light a take on homelessness. It made it look like a jolly adventure. Oh, they're riding the rails and going into town. He's going to see his son. And at the end, he's got the option of staying in a nice warm house with a family or going out and hoboing around. And it's like, no. So basically, his best pal on the road is one of the relations from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, the one who ends up setting fire to the Christmas tree. And yeah, he's sort of like saying, oh, come on, you know, let's get in the road, you and me, we're like Gene Kelly and Danny Kay. I don't know, did they ever do anything together? I have no idea. But yeah, so he's like miserable sod and saying, come on then, Hobo, let's be having you. And Hobo, in the meantime, he is wanting to see his son, who he hasn't seen for years. And his son's a miserable sod. He's like Paul Newman with a moustache, but he's really dour. <sighs> I don't know what that woman sees in him at all. He's got this partner, you see, and she apparently wants to settle down or, or not or whatever. So Hobo, you know, he arrives and, yeah, his son, who's like chief of police or whatever, he doesn't want to have anything to do with him and, and so on and so on and so on. It all works out. So that was Hobo's Christmas and <laughs> it did go out on ITV, funnily enough. I think it was Christmas 92. And now, this is the thing. Does this need a category of its own? Is this possibly a subsection of the seasonal oddity? I'm not sure. But Hobo's Christmas went out, I think it was Christmas 92, it was the week before Christmas, and it went out on ITV, networked by and large, in the children's ITV slot. Not under oh. the children's ITV, now hang, on, now hang on, not under the children's ITV banner, but it went out in that slot, and all week long you had the stuff that you get on, you know, your sort of lesser Sky Movies Christmas type channels just now. You've got films like that, mainly sort of TV movies and what have you. You've got them every single afternoon in the children's ITV slot. Now, how do you categorise that? Because they're not really children's films. And yet, they're forcing the kids to go off Do they have that one where Peter Falk's an angel? Probably. With a personal stereo? I mean, let's face it, even if you were a CITV kid, you're not going to sit there and watch Bloody Hobo all afternoon are you You're gonna go over to this children's bbc because they're still larking about and what have you and maybe you'll stay there once you see what goes on in the broom cupboard and all that kind of stuff because i think that actually happened more than once i think that happened a few years in the early 90s as, as itv did that and had all those films in that slot and it's a weird piece of scheduling so i don't know how on earth you categorize that unfortunately of course they don't have citv by and large on itv anymore so nowadays they would just be displacing things like the chase and tipping point and stuff like that but I don't think they've got any plans to air Hobo's Christmas boner for 2015. Another thing we rejected was a film called Finding John Christmas, which Peter Falk plays an angel who is a big fan of a song called Do 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 Do. <laughs> Put Hobo to one side. Let's go for our Christmas Martian. The Christmas Martian. This is a funny old business, isn't it? Is it French or French Canadian, did you say? French Canadian, I think. It's incoherent, isn't it? It just flops around things just happen because this is dubbed which makes it even more dreamlike things occur and people react there's not a great deal of cause and effect so there's a couple of children in a snowbound town they go to get some supplies from the local store a bizarre man in a fur coat 
and some sort of crocheted fishnet body stocking that partially covers his face, runs in, starts helping himself to a tub, not a tube, a tub full of Smarties, and the store owner calls the police immediately. <laughs> he doesn't even say, stop eating those Smarties. Yeah, what the are hell do you think you you're doing? Gonna... Get out. Any of that. Oh, help, police, I'm being robbed. To quote Billy Rushton, you should have said, are you going to pay for that? Well, then spit it out. And he runs out. Is that the first time he lights his match, his magic match? It's a huge distress flare that looks like a match. He just lights it and he flies up in the air. And then there's just a gathering of all the town old geezers going, things are happening, bro. A man who doesn't know how to make a sandwich has a flashback to the time when the Martian... Well, we don't actually know that he's from Mars. Despite the title. You got to explain that. He, he he does actually manage to make a sandwich, but then he eats it as as individual components. He doesn't even make it as a sandwich. No, he gets a slice of bread and then he gets like a tiny slice of chicken. Not enough to cover the bread. And he kind of has to hold on to the bread and hold on to the chicken because otherwise the piece of chicken will fall off as soon as he bites into it. And he takes one bite and then he sort of like takes the chicken off and eats some of the chicken and then he eats bread. What? And this isn't is the, is the Martian that we're talking thing? about. Is that a recipe, the French-Canadian sandwich? No, this is a resident of the town. <laughs> well, you think that that's some sort of Quebecer recipe? Yeah, maybe they have a tradition. Maybe there's a good reason with the weather like it is. There's a reason that they can't make sandwiches. Or maybe it's just that guy. The open piece-by-piece piece sandwich. We have the most negligent parents outside of jam. <laughs> They're almost that bad, aren't they? The kids are out, messing around. We just keep cutting back to bread. Oh, where are the kids? Oh, they'll be fine. They stay out till dark, don't they? Doesn't like the, the, the fellow himself, when he's had the, the police warning about how there's some unidentified entity roaming around and they're all going to go looking for it, at that point, they're still like, the kid's back. They're not back, are they? No, they'll be fine. Don't worry about it. For goodness sake. One thing at a time. Let's find this weirdo first of all, and then we'll worry about the kids afterwards. I mean, the way it's cut is strange. So we have the big gathering of people in the town store going, oh, things happening. For a time, things happened in 100 years. And then we cut to the Martian walking around weird with jump cuts, but enough jump cuts that it must be deliberate. It looks just like some frames from the film are missing. And then we cut back and the kids are on a sleigh. Nice of you to give this lift, Mr. Kramer. What? What? Who's Mr. Kramer? Where, where, where did he come from? It doesn't seem to be part of the plot. They're just messing around on a sleigh it is one of the few christmas movies that genuinely features a one-horse open sleigh and then the martian is aware somehow he must have heard the radio and understood it no actually you know how can he understand it he hasn't drunk his magical english language portion yet that's to enable him to speak isn't it but he might be able to understand if you can hear and understand why does he have to try a few different languages before he gets the right one he's somehow aware that the police are after him so Link with last time, he dresses up as a woman and then lights one of his magical distress flares and flies off. I say, why did you dress as a woman? Why did you just fly off? As far as appearing incognito is concerned, he really hasn't got a grip on it, has he? No, because he keeps this weird crocheted fishnet face mask on at all times. It's principally the matches that are going to give him away, isn't it? It's this whole flying into the air business. <laughs> this is not what he looks like. Dream, like, actually, this does remind me of a dream I had. It was about Ken Stott as Rebus. It was an episode of Rebus, and Ken Stott just talked all the time. Didn't matter if there was anybody there or with him or not. 
He just kept talking and talking and talking. And that happens a lot in this. <laughs> I'm guessing this was a very dialogue-heavy in French film. And it's like th their mouths are moving. We don't need this much English to convey what's happening. But their mouths are moving, so just say something. That whole scene in the tobacconists where all the police are hanging out and they're just principally it's so they can introduce that business about the guy can't make the sandwich but there's a hell of a lot of talk in there isn't there where they're just like you know oh we are men and we're all together on a we big old Devo. circle <laughs> this reminds me of a Japanese film called Prince of Space with the way the kids just yammer on at each other in Prince of Space two children see a spaceman and there's lines like I'm not scared if you want to go on home and <laughs> A message is left for the children in a bird cage, and they say, "Do you think it came from Prince of Space?" Yeah, who else could put a message in a cage like that? I get the feeling this was translated on the fly. <laughs> I do hope this had live Oracle subtitling. It is the audio equivalent of live Oracle subtitling. I just get the feeling they had this like, right, just set the film running, turn the microphones on. I'm pretty sure my French is good enough. We can all just do this. Without any prep. Go, okay, go. Maybe the voiceover artists were paid per word. I mean, there's a bit where the speech and the face don't match. They get a snowblower or a snowplow, push a load of snow onto the flying saucer, because that's how the alien came. The visitor, as he's credited. That's how he came to Earth. And we get this close-up shot of the Christmas Martian. And he goes, Oh, it's good that you moved the snow, but... Oh, why did you throw the snow upon my poor saucer? It's an odd line read, and it doesn't match his facial expression, and I do not know what his facial expression is trying to convey. It's like he's just been given the direction, look weird. Look like you've been drinking from a bottle of Sambuca that's been left out in the open in the sun for six years. Why did you have to bring up the Sambuca? Like I did. Hey. Hey. No. <laughs> now, actually, I, my memory cheated me on this. My memory of this film was that the Martian sounded like somebody doing an impression of Alan Young from Mr. Ed. But I'm disappointed to hear that, no, he, he doesn't sound like that. And I don't think there's two dubs of this flying around. But it did make me think of Battle of the Planets. Do you remember Seven Zark Seven in that? No. You know Battle of the Planets? I'm aware of its work. Yes. And it was a Japanese anime. Is that the right word? I think so, yeah. Okay. We'll go with that. And it was called Gatchaman. But being Japanese, it occasionally got a bit violent, maybe a bit sexy sometimes. And any time that happened, we suddenly cut to Seven Zark Seven in his submarine. Right, I've had an idea. And Seven Zark Seven was voiced by Alan Young. All comes together, except it doesn't because the Martian didn't sound like Alan Young. Christmas Martian, UK-specific dub. Who are you casting? Kenny Everett. Oh, that's a good idea. Yes, I like that. Okay, for the police chief who can't make a sandwich, Lance Percival. <laughs> okay. What about the couple? Teddy and June. It's got to be, the, yeah, Teddy and June for the couple. How much money are you spending on this? We don't have that kind of dubbing industry. We can't get proper actors for dubbing. I personally would prefer a lot of foreign films to be dubbed because there's times when I'm missing on-screen action because my eyes are sort of going back and forth between reading and looking. There's definitely been movies where there's bit to be a nice shot that you're just meant to take in while you look and listen, and I'm there reading and missing part of the shot. It's okay for stuff that's not dialogue-heavy, but some films just die. But we don't have a good dubbing industry with lots of investment in it. 
I think if it was done right, people wouldn't be so bothered by it. But things like Christmas Martian kind of queered the pitch. I don't necessarily agree that to get Terry and June to do the voices of the parents in this would necessitate a huge amount of funding in the UK dubbing industry. But, I mean, yeah. That version of Asterix and the Big Fight. There's an Asterix cartoon and for the voice cast they've got Bill Oddie, Bernard Breslau, Sheila Hancock, Tim Brooke Taylor. There's loads of them in there. We, we might do that sometime. Do you know what actually there is? Now, what is it now? It's some film. I don't know what it is. Is it Shrek? Something like that. Probably. No, there's a few. You mean films where there's been a UK-specific voice? There was a film, I think, called Robots. I remember going to a press showing of that, and I, I think it just came and went. And there was a character in there dubbed by Terry Wogan. Because there was a film that went out, I think it was last Christmas, on BBC, and they used the American version of it. And I think, like, Kate Thornton was supposed to be this red carpet interviewer, and an American version was Joan Rivers. And I think there was an interviewer who was Jonathan Ross in the UK, and it was Larry King in the US. I think there's Andy Peters in something. I think there's more than one case where there's been a regional-specific dub. Never mind national-specific, regional-specific. <laughs> right, next big Pixar film, I want Harry Gration in there. Okay, I'll see you, Harry Gration, and I will raise you Frank Gilfeller for viewers in the north of Scotland and for viewers in Northern Ireland, Julian Simmons. <laughs> Which version? Normal Julian Simmons? Or pre-Coronation Street Julian Simmons? <laughs> <laughs> Let's say half and half, every other word. Okay, for the east of England, can we have Paul Lavers? This isn't getting this movie reviewed. Reviewed. Like, people are going to want to know our opinion before they decide whether they seek it out. So the kids end up on the Martian spacecraft. He suffocates them in Smarties. Is it Smarties or is it M&Ms or is it it's Reese's Pieces? Thing. It's It's probably a separate Cowboy Quas Oh, I've had Reese's Pieces in ages. Do you even get Reese's Pieces in the UK and Poundland? The thing oh, is, is that because nice. he's tried these, he's got some replicator on his ship that just spews them out of a pipe. And at one point, it does kind of look like the kids suffocated, but they didn't. And then they're scoffing at them. And that's enough to convince them that this guy's friendly and they should hang around with him. And he's a weird kind of clown Martian. When you say clown Martian, he's not like the clowns in that Russian circus, because circus is bad. We've established that from Doc. No, he's an interstellar clown. He does take them around the world, and there's a beautiful thing where he says, my view scanner is not quite used to Earth's atmosphere. How do the atmospheric problems on Earth's atmosphere show themselves on the view scanner? Why, they just have to look like scratches on 16 mil. <laughs> That's the thing about this. I shouldn't really have to ask this question having just watched it, but I didn't pick up on it if there was. Was this like some environmental film? Or something like that. But I don't, I don't think there was, was there? There wasn't any. Well, there's like, a song at the end which, like the rest of the movie, sounded like it was being done on the fly. Are you familiar with the phenomenon of song poems? Run one by me and I'll see if I know what it is. They're famous for being song poems. It's not like they're a famous song poems. What happened was, I think it was principally an American phenomenon. I think it actually started out in the old days of sheet music. Send us your lyrics, pay us a fee. It's like vanity publishing and we'll put music to it. So initially you might get a piece of sheet music that had set your lyrics. This kept going into the days of recording. So you would get back 
maybe a single or maybe an album which you'd have to share space with other people and your lyrics would be set to music but of course these are done in like no time so there is unusual scansion it frequently sounds like the singer is seeing these lyrics for the very first time <laughs> and there was a song at the end of the christmas martian which wasn't entirely in the range of the singer singing there was something about oh if he looks different and weird welcome him because strangers strange is just a friend you haven't met so that's not in there but that's the essential message it does sound good actually i want you to introduce me to some of these song poems that sounds like fun especially if it's all over the bloody this shop. is going to be difficult well there you go this is difficult to describe this film they steal a motor ski then they put it back and they steal a snowplow from their uncle they get their uncle to repair part of the martian ship and he acts oh boy you picked up on the lead time didn't you because ordinarily if you put an item like that into a workshop you know like i just had my laptop in for a pair and it took like a full 13 days before i got it back and they take that thing into the workshop and he's like what is it oh whatever <laughs> done <laughs> i like he wasn't very busy or he prioritized their request well fair enough but he did a lot of acting when he's telling the police about his missing snowplow i mean lots of acting in the voice and lots of gesturing from the actor didn't they threaten to run him in at one point oh very probably yes with a sped up police car the same piece of footage being used for the police car leaving two different places. <laughs> what is there to say about this? Because I kept thinking it was ending and then it didn't. They fly around the world, they land, the Martian says goodbye to them and says, I have a son and daughter of my own back on my home planet and I'm going to have to go there. And he gets a little bit tearful as he says goodbye, but he doesn't give it the full dot. And I'm thinking, okay, and, 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 oh no, the townsfolk are coming after him. And then they go home and it must be Christmas Eve because their dad... Okay, I'll give him this. He was right. They were okay. <laughs> they came home fine. I'm still not sure that excuses his earlier negligence. He dresses up as Santa and then the Martian turns up dressed as Santa and the police arrive and it's like, oh, one of these guys is an imposter. Arrest both of them. And then the Martian teleports back to his saucer, which he could have done at any time. He led them a merry dance. I really enjoyed this, to be honest. I enjoyed it much more than Dot because it wasn't trying to say anything. It was just arsing around for fun. That's what was so enjoyable about it. And his name on his home planet translated as Poo Flower. We didn't really do a great job of selling that one. But normally I take my notes down and that's fine. I can kind of restore the plot in my memory from just what I've written down. But here it's bouncing around like a pinball. This wasn't made by Jean-Luc Goddard, was it? Would you forgive him if it was for Weekend? Maybe, yeah, maybe. So do you agree seasonal oddities are a thing? Oh, God, yes. Oh, very much so. And the thing is that you don't tend to get this kind of stuff happen at any other time of the year because this doesn't really happen a great deal for Easter, does it? And as far as things like Halloween are concerned, okay, they always trot out old horror movies and what have you, but it's not quite the same. Next week on The Sitcom Club... Next week on The Sitcom Club, we are going to be looking at a show which we've mentioned many a time, but we've never actually got around to discussing in full, and that's going to be The Whackers, written by Vince Powell from 1976. And that's available on DVD. Network, as it happens. Seven episodes, only six of them were ever actually broadcast. And in two weeks' time, on Jaffa Cakes for Proust, we will be spending three Christmas nights with the stars. 
So in the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com or you can message us on Twitter at the sitcom club or on Facebook, same name. And of course, you can find us at sitcomclub.com. You can find all the previous editions of the podcast. And you can also find all the podcasts plus a whole load of other podcasts on podnose.com as well. So in the meantime, tilt. Goodbye. Mince pies to you too. And this is Gary saying this has been Jaffa Cakes for Proust.